Hey, if you're new with us, uh, we've been going through Luke since December of 2021. <laughs> and uh, some 70 sermons later, we are at our final exposition of this remarkable gospel. And even though we finish a book of the Bible, it doesn't mean the book of Luke is finished with us. Right? For the rest of our lives, we'll be exploring the depth of this remarkable book. Uh, and so we invite you in on this uh, last part of our study together. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for all that you have showed us, and we pray you would show us more today in your word, the glory of it, the beauty of it, the centrality of Jesus in it. And I pray that our hearts would burn within us as your word uh, is heard, uh, and that as we experience uh, the truth of it in our hearts. And so we pray for eyes to see hearts to behold, and wills to obey. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. I recently watched a few episodes of the old television show Columbo. I know it's a surprise. <laughs> you didn't see that coming. Uh, but I, I've heard people reference Columbo my whole life, really, whenever someone's slow to figure something out. It's usually as a put-down of, of, like, way to go, Columbo. Um, but I wanted to watch this show for myself, and he's this L.A. detective. This was well before my time, of course, because I'm a young guy. Um, I think it was in the 70s. He's like this unconventional, eccentric, uh, disheveled uh, detective. And uh, it looks like he doesn't know anything about the case he's trying to solve, uh, and yet he again and again takes down the powerful uh, with his wisdom. And Columbo is known for one particular line, just one more thing. He'll be uh, in someone's house or in their business. He's got his little trench coat on and his little cigar, and he's, he's like walking out of the house, and he'll turn around and say, oh, there's there just one more thing. And he'll ask a question, and you know he's about to break the case open uh, with that particular question. I thought about that as I come to the end of Luke, because Luke has just one more thing he, he wants to show us. Because th this, is, this has been a really full day already in Luke 24. It's still the same day. But there's still just one more thing that Luke wants us to see. We've looked at the empty tomb. We've looked at the road to Emmaus. We mentioned how Jesus had appeared to Peter, verse 34. Verse 35, we left the disciples fellowshipping with one, with one another, but it's not over. This text in front of us today relates back to the empty tomb and the resurrection, but it also points forward to Luke's next book, the book of Acts. So this is an epilogue that's also a prologue. Luke is setting us up for the sequel known as Acts. And this last portion of, of Luke is practically significant because, one, it gives us hope. Jesus really did rise from the dead. It also gives us instruction on like how to read the Scriptures. And it also gives us purpose. We're reminded of our mission to be His witnesses in, the, in this world. So this text really, really has it all. Let's look at it in three parts. First of all, Jesus gives them a confident assurance. A confident assurance. Secondly, he gives the disciples a clear mission. And then thirdly, they are left with a contagious joy. So let's think about those three things together. First of all, confident assurance in verse 36. It says that the disciples are talking among themselves about these things. You can imagine them swapping stories talking about the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. He went on a walk with the disciples. He, he, they, he broke the bread and they recognized him. He appeared to Peter. And then all of a sudden the text says, Jesus stood among them. Just out of nowhere, he just appears to them. And he says, peace be to you, or peace to you. Jesus appears with this resurrected body. And this resurrected body is both marvelous and mysterious. It could suddenly appear and disappear, as we saw in verse 31. 
John tells us that apparently Jesus could transport, him, transport himself from place to place, passing through locked doors. And this helps us understand a little bit about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about our resurrected bodies that will happen one day, that the resurrected body will be imperishable, powerful, glorious, and spiritual. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now we have that to look forward to, saints. A body that's imperishable. A body that's glorious. A lot of people want the perfect body in this life. The good news is we get our best body later. <laughs> a glorious body. A body that's powerful. When, when you put someone uh, in the ground, when someone dies, their body is powerless. But the raised body will never be powerless. And it will be spiritual. Right now we have a, a, a natural body, as Paul calls it, that's fitted for this world. But we will have a spiritual body that will be fitted for new creation. And we see a glimpse of that with Jesus in this text. Apparently he could transcend the normal limitations of time and space. And this sort of freaked the disciples out. <laughs> as, as we accept this today by faith, they first accepted it by fear. As Jesus just certainly appears to them, it says in verse 37, he startled them and they thought they saw a spirit. He, he scares the liver out of these guys by his appearance. I mean, they think he's a ghost. Even though they know Jesus has been raised from the dead bodily, they're not ready for this yet. They're still putting everything together, and it wasn't like Jesus knocked at the door very politely, and they welcomed him in. Can you imagine just sitting in your house later this evening, and all of a sudden, boom, Jesus appears. You'll be like, man, I don't know what I just ate for lunch, or what's going on. We were at a conference several months ago, and I invited some guys up to my hotel room, and um, I'd left the door open so other guys could sort of come and go, and it was about 10.30 at night. We had a strange visitor. Some, the guy next door shows up in his sleeping clothes and just quietly walks in our room, basically to tell us to be quiet. I didn't think we were being that loud, but the way he went about it was so unusual. Like, he didn't yell at us. He was actually really calm and started telling us about the whole hotel and what it had to offer. And like on floor two, there was a pool table. And refreshments are here. And he was just telling us like, he had, I had to get up at 3.30 in the morning. So there are other places for you guys to go. And, and then he just left. And that's the closest thing I have to what, what <laughs> happens here. As, as the guy in the white shirt just appeared in my hotel. And, and my friends, are, we reflect on it now. We're like, you remember that time the guy in the white shirt just sh showed up in, in our room? Well, Way more remarkable than that, Jesus here appears to these guys and he tries to calm them down and he's trying to assure them that he really has been raised from the dead bodily. He's not trying to just poke fun at them or like pull a prank on them. He wants them to believe in resurrection. Why do doubts, he says, arise in your heart? Verse 38. You see the tenderness of Jesus. He's lovingly challenging them to believe in the resurrection. And he does the same for us. When doubts arise in our hearts, we go to Jesus, the perfect cure for troubled hearts. He says, I want you to see me. See my hands, see my feet, touch me. He says, I'm not a ghost. I have flesh and bones. Presumably his hands had the nail marks, but no longer in pain. 
They could touch him. This is how John begins his epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes. We have looked upon and we have touched with our hands. We today have heard the word of life. We haven't seen Jesus with our eyes nor touched him with our hands, but we will one day. We will see him. He's not just a spirit being. He's not some random spirit. He's showing them that he has flesh and bones. He's showing them that the resurrection is a real bodily resurrection. The gospel is not a ghost story. One day, our mortal bodies, like Jesus, will rise again. When my son Joshua was really young, he used to say, Papa, when Jesus rises you, you're going to get a new head. <laughs> and that encourages me. Right? My friend Brian Key tells a story about his daughter Maya, who's three years old. He had made a promise to her that they would do something fun tomorrow. And so when he woke her up the next morning, she asked, Daddy, is today tomorrow? And we ask that question to God when we think about resurrection hope. Is today tomorrow? But the resurrection lets us know that tomorrow has been secured. Our tomorrow is secure. The suffering that we endure in this life has an end date to it. We will rise like our Lord. He shows them his, his hands and his feet, and he says, it is I myself. Shows them these, these wounds, permanent reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And so Jesus is giving them a confident assurance that he's been raised from the dead. Now today, you will find this a lot. You'll encounter this sort of idea that there was no bodily resurrection. The resurrection is just a great idea. And what you're to take from the stories are really just faith and virtue and those kinds of things. But we don't take this whole thing seriously and literally. So John Dominic Crossing, one well-known agnostic, says, Emmaus never happened, this account, but Emmaus always happens. It's that kind of nonsense you encounter. One writer for a Unitarian Universalist says, we believe that Jesus, the belief that Jesus knowingly sacrifices life to atone for the sins of humanity, or that by his sacrifice and our belief in him as our Lord and Savior, uh, can each of us individually be saved, Universalists do not believe. There is also a very little, she says, he says rather, biblical evidence for those claims. Unitarian Universalists primarily speak, he's, he says, if we use the term at all, of resurrection within our own lives before physical death. Well, that is not what we're seeing in the Gospels. The Creed puts it well. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. And then we read of this great line, as they're looking at the resurrected Jesus, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Isn't that a great phrase? Disbelieving for joy, meaning this is too good to be true. There's still a little bit of skepticism, as we mentioned last week. They were not just more likely to believe than we are today. Some primitive people, no, they were a skeptical bunch, but they're seeing Jesus, he's, he's, been res, res, he's risen from the dead, seeing him bodily, and they disbelieve for joy. That's a great phrase. I'm going to use it one day if I ever hit a hole in one. I will disbelieve for joy that that actually happened. My golf game is I believe for despair a lot. Um, but, but they disbelieve for joy. They're in amazement. And everywhere we look today, everywhere we look this week, we will see evidences of death and the fall, brokenness of society. But because of resurrection, we know one day all things will be restored. And the hope of resurrection gives hope, especially to suffering saints. As it's been said before, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. 
You go get a physical, hey, how you doing? I'd like a resurrection. That'd be great. Well, Jesus attempts to bring, uh, bring them back to earth, so he asks them, have you anything here to eat? Apparently you work up an appetite when you rise from the dead and walk seven miles. And Jesus is really trying to give them some more proof. He's giving them assurance because what is basic to human existence is eating food. And while the disciples are still trying to process the idea of a bodily resurrection, they have seen a fish before. And they know that he's not some ghost as he begins to, to eat this. Now later, it's interesting, in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34, you can read this later, Peter gives a great summary, really, of what we've read in the Gospel of Luke about the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection. And then he also adds, we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He thought it was significant to put that little bit in his summary of the Gospel. This was assurance, this was proof that Jesus had truly resurrected bodily. And Jesus has given these disciples here assurance of that. He's about to send them to the ends of the earth. They're about to lay their lives down for him. And what they're about to do for him is, uh, it makes sense when you realize what Jesus has done. He's given them absolute assurance. And it's real earthy. Uh, Ralph Davis puts it well. Christianity has always been like this. It deals in flesh and bones, in fish and nail holes. It won't allow you to escape into spiritual ether. Biblical faith, resurrection faith, is terribly crass and earthy. And it's this earthiness that grounds the disciples. It gives them assurance. And the same is true for us. If we're not sure about the resurrection, we will not proclaim the gospel to people. And we will live in fear in this life. We need this kind of assurance. This is foundational for us. One professor told a story about a, a rather unstable guy in the community who lived in a small two-story house. And he was outside one day with a sledgehammer wailing away at the foundation of his home. And a reasonable man was passing by and he asked him what he was doing. After all, he said, you know, you live in that house. Why are you wailing away at the, at the foundation? And the guy puts a sledgehammer down and he says, oh, don't worry about it. I live on the second floor. An obvious problem, right? You don't have a second floor if you don't have a foundation. It all collapses. And there is no second floor of Christianity if there is no resurrection. It's a foundation. Apart from Him, the whole thing collapses. But we have a firm foundation. Our faith is not in vain. We are not still in our sins. We have something to proclaim. As Paul says, He has been raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And this deep assurance, this, this uh, confident assurance that Jesus gives them then leads into this clear mission. This will be their assignment that we see lived out in the book of Acts. And it's really not a new revelation. Notice verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I've spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must come to pass. Notice Jesus' emphasis here. It's back to the scriptures. We looked at this last week. What do you do after you rise from the dead? He does a whole Bible study on the Old Testament and tells them how it all points to him. Now at the end of Luke here, he's doing it again. He's showing them that the scripture is reliable and it is sufficient. It contains what we need to have real saving faith. It gives us everything we need. Remember Jesus when he, he warned er, earlier in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, this, this line, if they do not believe, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
That what you need to believe is not to see that, but actually to see Christ in his word, that it's sufficient. And then he explains the scriptures, doesn't he? And he tells us how to, how to read them properly. The incarnate word explains the written word. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? And he tells them how it all points to him, how it all must be fulfilled, a divine must. And he refers to the three-part division of the Hebrew Bible, or as we call it the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and Moses. All of it bears witness to Jesus. All of it points to him. There's a great little book on the kind of the big picture of the Bible called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. And he gives a striking illustration that points to the, the importance of keeping Jesus central in the biblical narrative. He says that two boys were bored on a rainy summer day, and so they, they decided to do a puzzle. And they were making no progress on this jigsaw puzzle until they turned the, the top lid over and saw the picture that they were trying to create. And it was a medieval court scene with the king surrounded by royal advisors. And one of the boys said, oh, I see it. The king is in the middle. The king is in the middle. And once they saw that the king was in the middle, they were able to put the rest of the puzzle together. And so it is when we read the scripture. We read the scripture knowing that the king is in the middle. Jesus is central in it. And he is to be central in our lives. Jesus then does something that is necessary for us to grasp the significance of the Bible, to be changed by it. He illuminates their minds. Notice verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We saw this earlier in the chapter with Cleopas, that they could not grasp the scriptures. They could not recognize Jesus. They needed divine illumination. And this is what people need today. We need God to open up our hearts and our minds to rightly understand the gospel and to be changed by it. One old theologian talked about these uh, divine illumination in two categories, saving illumination and interpretive illumination. We need to begin with God to open up our eyes, to take the veil off, to use Paul's language, to see Jesus for who he is and be changed. And then the rest of our lives, we're asking, like the psalmist in Psalm 119, open up my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your word. This interpretive illumination. Our faith is rational, but it's more than intellectual. It takes a supernatural working of God to be changed by his word. So we ask him as we come to the Bible, open up our minds, open up our hearts. There's a beautiful scene. We'll look at it in a few weeks, hopefully, in uh, Acts 16, when Lydia says, the Lord opened up her heart to understand and believe Paul's message. That's what we're praying for people who are not Christians. Lord, would you open up their minds, open up their hearts, that they may receive the gospel. Jesus then tells them that they have a responsibility, and that is to proclaim the gospel, this is their mission, to the ends of the earth, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He says, you are witnesses of these things. He says, you are to go out into the world and tell people to turn from their sin, put their faith in me, repentance, and tell them how they can have forgiveness. And notice how it is said here. Forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. That is, on the basis of what he's done on the cross, we can have forgiveness. We are forgiven through Jesus, the per perfect atoning sacrifice. And where do we proclaim this? He says, all nations. Not just among Jews, not just in Jerusalem, but to all ethne. 
This is uh, fitting with what Paul's, uh, Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we'll look at next week, that we are to go out into the ends of the earth and proclaim the good news. Now we need something. We need something more than just good training. We need power, which is why Jesus then tells them, <clears throat> I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now this is instructive and it's encouraging. These guys had the best three-year training degree you could ever have. They graduated from Jesus University, Jesus Seminary. They knew everything. They, they were taught hermeneutics uh, and in Bible interpretation from Jesus. And yet, they lacked something. Because you need something more than training. You need power. If the disciples needed power on top of their training, how much more do we? Right? Go to Jerusalem and wait until you're clothed with power. Now that's encouraging because it shows us that the work that is done is not done in our own power. There's a power coming from the Father. That is, the Spirit would come at Pentecost. And we see these guys who were hardly ever out of their own hometowns turning the world upside down. How did that happen? It happened not just by their training with Jesus. It happened because the Spirit is the Spirit of mission. The spread of the gospel is a supernatural work. And this is our mission as well, church. We, it is grounded in the Word. It is centered on Jesus. It is, it is empowered by the Spirit. So with the confident assurance that Jesus really did rise from the dead, flows this really clear mission to preach repentance and forgiveness among the nations by the power of the Spirit. And we, we leave off Acts, finally, <clears throat> with these disciples radiating a contagious joy. A joy that would be very instrumental in their witness in the book of Acts. Look, notice verses 50 to 53. It's a, the scene of the ascension. It's not apparent from the reading of the ending here of Luke that the ascension takes place 40 days later, but Luke clarifies that interval for us in Acts. And here at the end of Luke, Jesus takes the disciples to Bethany and to the Mount of Olives, and he blesses them as he lifts up his hands. This is reminiscent of the priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6. Jesus, acting as the final priest for God's people, blesses them, and after he blesses them, he's carried up into heaven. Can you imagine these disciples? First, it's a bodily resurrection. Jesus has appeared to them out of nowhere. And now they watch him be carried up into heaven. He didn't merely vanish this time. He ascended into heaven at the Father's right hand, riding on a glorious cloud, this cloud that represented the presence of God. Jesus is restored to fellowship with his Father, being worshipped by the angelic host. And what a wonderful conclusion to Luke's gospel. This same Jesus that was born in a manger, who taught and performed mighty deeds, who was crucified, who rose from the dead, also ascended to the Father. And one day we will see him. The ascension of Jesus displays the fact that he is now the exalted Lord in Christ. He is the cornerstone of God's temple. He's the exalted Davidic king. And the ascension doesn't get as much attention as the crucifixion and resurrection. But I think it's worth pondering a few reasons why it's so significant before we finish. Here are just five reasons that the ascension is significant, and 
what it touches on. First of all, it shows us the completeness of Jesus' victory. The ascension will be, will be part of the message that is proclaimed, that Jesus is the exalted king, and the ascension shows that. So it shows us completeness. Secondly, it relates to the forgiveness of sins. As Jesus not only ascended, but now he advocates for us at the Father's throne. So it's completeness, it's forgiveness. It also touches on our effectiveness in evangelism. Jesus, because he's ascended, then went on to pour out the Holy Spirit, and now we are his witnesses with power. But it also notes the nearness of Jesus. Nearness. Think about it. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, it's to your advantage that I go away from you. And they're kind of like, how is that to our advantage? I mean, wouldn't you today rather Jesus be with you right here physically? Well, the apostles experienced two disadvantages during the ministry of Jesus. One was his presence was localized, but now it's universalized by the Spirit of Christ. Sometimes they were separated from Jesus physically. He's on the other side of the lake. He's up in the mountain praying. Jesus couldn't be at every place at one time. If Jesus didn't ascend to the Father, we would all be going to Jerusalem all the time to go see Jesus. That would create quite a traffic problem uh, in the Middle East. But the Spirit of Christ removes that problem. Jesus is with us. He looks at the disciples in John and he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Pastors can't be everywhere. Your small group can't be anywhere, everywhere. Your parents can't be everywhere. But the Spirit of Christ is with us. The other problem was Jesus was external, not internal. But now the Spirit will be in us, we read in John 14, 17. As the Spirit indwells us, now He's changing us from the inside out. So the ascension relates to the completeness of Jesus' victory, the forgiveness of sins, the effectiveness of evangelism, the nearness of Jesus, and it also means hopefulness. That something is about to happen now that he has ascended. We're waiting on the last act of redemptive history to take place. This same Jesus who ascends to the Father, Acts 1.11, will also come in the same way. We are waiting on him with expectation. Well, the final two verses are very fitting. Luke says, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. Shriner writes, the center of worship is no longer the temple where the story of Luke begins, but Jesus is. He, as Stephen explains in Acts 7, is the center of Israel's worship, not the temple. Still, the mission begins in Jerusalem. And thus the disciples return there joyously. And this is one of the marks of Acts that I love so much, is that the believers are so filled with joy. Even when they're beat up, they're joyful. Right? Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Think about how Luke 24 begins and how it ends. It begins with skepticism and sadness. It ends with joy and worship. Why? Because the resurrection brings joy. The Spirit of God brings joy. The enthronement of Jesus brings joy. The promise of his return brings joy. And belonging to him brings joy. And this is a wonderful trait. And it's a very winsome trait in our witness. Radiating a contagious joy as Lloyd-Jones put it, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. 
Unhappy Christians are a poor recommendation for the faith. The exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. What led to the ex explosive growth of the early church? One of the things was an exuberant joy that could not be squelched, that could not be put out, even in suffering, even in death. And may it be of us as well. We have a confident assurance, church. Jesus has risen from the dead bodily, and we will too. We have a clear mission, and we too can radiate a contagious joy. May it take place in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we would pray to these ends today that when doubts arise in our hearts, we would go back to your word and receive the needed confirmation that we need, that we may have a confident assurance and that when trials and hardship comes upon us, we would see that our greatest problem has already been solved. And that we would take this clear mission to heart every day in our workplace, where we shop, where we live, where we play, that the word of Christ would be on our lips all the time. And that you would give us a joy that's different. That even in our sorrow we could rejoice. Even in our afflictions we can rejoice. Because we know Jesus and we know what he's done and what he will do. So fill us afresh with that kind of joy, we pray today in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen.